So occasionally we have missionaries come to the church and we let them share and tell us a little bit about their mission. Today we have something a little bit special. Yes, we have a missionary who came to our church, but um, and Robin Hampton and Dr. Michael Butati, if you, you, you pronounce it Butati? Butati? Okay. just want to make sure I get it right or close, right? Um, but it's really special. She's, she spent four decades on the mission field. So, I mean, in my mind, I think of missionaries that go on the mission field and they, um, and they leave their comforts in their home. But I guess at this point in your life, that's probably more your comfort than here. <laughs> now you've gotten used to it. And so, and you're retiring now. And so we're going to give her extended time to really share about what God has done and just let you know what's going on. And, and so give her a hand. And <laughs> Some of you may have been here when I first came in 1973. I was appointed in January 1973 by a world venture. At that point, was Conservative Baptist and headed to Cote d'Ivoire. I came with an accordion and was singing and trying to encourage people to, to pray for the ministry, and you jumped on the bandwagon, not only with prayer, but in partnership. And I'd like to thank you for that today. About three months ago, God gave me a special verse as I was contemplating my official retirement, which will be end of February this next year. And it's in 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. I continually thank him for the joy of being able to serve him, of being able to share the mercy and love that he gave me with others. When I was nine years old, in Sunday school, we had a missionary speaker, someone that had been expelled from China, which had recently been taken over by the communists, and he was concerned that the struggling church there, the few believers, would not be able to hold out against the communist regime, which was trying to stamp out, of course, Christianity. Well, we know God's bigger than that. (laughs) And the Chinese church is enormous these days. They're even sending missionaries. Um, God is, is really in charge of what's going on in this world. And he considered me faithful and called me that day with the, the, the power of what that missionary was sharing, I just felt the burden. If there might be some place in this world where a boy or girl didn't have a Sunday school to go to, to tell them that God loved them, I just said, I'll go, I'll tell them. And when I look back, 1973 when I was appointed, back to that time at age nine, I can say, yeah, that was God's call on my life. And God brought it to fruition. And it has been a joy to serve him. But there comes a time when retirement arrives. And you find that your body's kind of getting a little tired. (laughs) There are things that are falling apart. (laughs) And younger people need to carry out what God has given as a mission. And this is one of the younger people that's going to be carrying it out. (laughs) Dr. Michael um, is not from Cote d'Ivoire. Where are you from, Michael? I'm from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, former called Zaire. 
It's very far, very far from Côte d'Ivoire. It's the east of Africa, and Côte d'Ivoire is the west of Africa. For those of you that don't know the size of that continent of Africa, it would, it would hold three of the continental United States. It is huge. So he came from a long way. Why? Thank you. <laughs> Prompts, huh? <laughs> Why, yes. Um, I came, they contacted me. Uh, I was just finished my university in uh, medical school studies, and I praised the Lord because it's one of um, a missionary from Portland who paid my university studies. God used her to pay this. So, she was, she was in Cote d'Ivoire when I finished my studies in, at the university, and they were in need of a doctor, a Christian doctor. Then they contacted me in Zaire and asked me if I could come and help them. So I agreed to come and help. But when I arrived, I came feeling that, knowing that I'm going to work as a doctor. But when I arrived in Cote d'Ivoire, I assumed that there was another need. They were in need of the gospel to share with the people their need of the gospel. Most of people, most of our patients, what I see, they've never heard about the gospel. So when I arrived, it was said I was coming for two years. But when I arrived in Cote d'Ivoire, I saw that there is a need of the gospel. I sharing people with the gospel, so I said I will stay and preach and teach people about the gospel to those who have never heard about the gospel. So uh, there now I'm seven years now instead of two years. <laughs> Do they already know about the gospel in, in Congo? In Congo, I can say in Congo where I came from, most of people are Christian. I can say most of people, I can't, or not all, but yes. They are Christian. They have heard about the gospel. They can hear about the gospel, but not believe. That's normal, which is different from Cote d'Ivoire. Some of Cote d'Ivoire have never. There are villages that you can tell someone have never heard about the gospel. And they believe, some of them believe in traditional religions, believe in witchcraft, believe in hills, mountains, bushes. Evil and so spirits that can inhabit those hills and mountains and trees. That this come and in me Muslims. and say that I will stay and teach them about the gospel. And they said, why I decided to stay in Cote d'Ivoire instead of going back in Congo? Besides the, the traditional religion people, the animists, he also met Muslims, which he had never met in uh, Congo. And so he found that as a mission field as well. The reason he um, was able to come to us the reason we knew about him was, of course, because of this pharmacist that was with us. But she had served before in his village in another World Venture Hospital, Ranguba, in uh, Congo. And he lived right near that hospital. His grandfather was the first pastor in that whole area. So Deborah knew about Michael, knew about his need, had supported him through medical school. And she knew he'd finished his studies. He was in Rwanda at the time, the first year after he finished his studies. And so she suggested we contact him because we had a desperate need for doctors. Now, there are doctors in Cote d'Ivoire, but the government system in Cote d'Ivoire finances their medical studies, and then they place them afterwards. It's very difficult to get out of that system and work in the private or confessional sector um, in health care. The... Um, 
same passage in 1 Timothy says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Michael saw that there was a great need in Cote d'Ivoire, and we saw his heart for missions. And so World Venture, the hospital, and Michael formed a partnership, and he is now uh, a partner, an international partner in ministry in World, in World Venture. He has a number. He receives support through the mission from various individuals and churches, and that's why we thought it was important that Michael come to the States now to travel with me as I was saying thank you and goodbye to my faithful supporters through the years to see if God might place upon the hearts um, of some of those people, some of those churches, a desire to continue um, supporting that work at the Baptist Hospital, where Diane Eliason, another of your missionaries, works. And so Dr. Michael is here. Um, it's hard to support something that you don't know. And you've heard his heart. He really has a mission heart. I, um, I've been blessed by my many years in Cote d'Ivoire. I've seen God work. In 1947, when the first missionary went in, we didn't know of any believers among the Senefo people in the northern part of Cote d'Ivoire. And they number around 2 million. In April of this next year, the National Church Association is celebrating 50 years. And in honor of your partnership in building the church in Cote d'Ivoire, through the support of people like the Slaters in the past, Diane Eliason, the Bays, and myself, I would like to give a gift to the church and ask Rich, who's head of the missions committee, and Chris to come up to receive it on your behalf. This is a, a pillow cover, and it represents the African church in Cote d'Ivoire. The green is the shape of the country of Cote d'Ivoire. And we work in the northern part of the country, planting churches, building God's people for his service. The three colors, the white, green, and orange, are the colors of the flag of Cote d'Ivoire. Orange, then white, then green. It's actually the opposite for Ireland. So it's the same colors, but in the opposite direction. So I would like to thank you for helping build the church in Cote d'Ivoire. There are about 400 churches now and about 40,000 believers, and you're part of it all. Thank you. <laughs> Justin, in closing, the last um, verse, well, in the same chapter in 1 Timothy, verse 17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's the one that did us. God gets the glory for all of this. Thank you for partnering in it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think first service, you unless I missed it, but you mentioned something about this past year. How many people did you say? Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought that was exciting, so I wanted to make sure that we... we... I'm, so, I'm sorry. Because of the joy, I forgot to, to, to tell fine. about 
on things. Thank you. Last year, as I said, we, we are working as, not as an, a doctor, but we are working as a, uh, evangelists. Healing the body, healing the spirit. Through our services last year, 123 people accepted to come to Jesus last year. Mm-hmm. That was our big joy. Thank you. Thank you. So this morning, before we transition into our time of offering, I'm just going to do a, a little devotional thought on missions. If you, if, if you could take some time to get to know me, you know I'm pretty passionate about missions, even spent some time doing our own missionary work. One of my favorite quotes that you've probably heard me say a lot that ties together my passion for missions with my love for music and its expression in worship is the quote that says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions happens because worship does not. There's a big world out there, and most of the world is not worshiping God. And, um, and so why do we do missions? Is because we want to get them to be worshipers. But on that day, that goal at the throne of God, there'll be no more missionaries. It'll just be worshipers forever. And we do begin that now today in our, in our singing and in our communion, in our fellowship, in our obedience. But I want to trace a little bit about the missionary, um, the missionary history. And, and, and hopefully this tracing will, will excite you a little bit as you think about the unique times that we live in and the potential for, for, for um, what God may be doing and certainly will do because of his promises. It begins, you could make a case for Genesis in, in the beginning of Genesis, but I'm going to begin in Genesis 12 when, when God spoke with Abraham. And he tells him this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you in, into a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was always God's intention to bless the entire globe. It was never his intention just to bless one culture group, one people group that we call Israel. It was always his intention to bless the entire globe. I I like Habakkuk 2.14, which says, "For For the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. That's the goal. So Jesus comes. He, um, he suffers, he sacrifices, he, he intercedes, he takes our place. And we're going to remember this in particular with communion. But after that, he, he gives us a call to go out and tell this gospel, to make it known to all nations, to all peoples. So I'm going to skip. You, you, missiologists can, can, take, can take the time from Jesus to now, and they can divide it up into roughly four periods, depending on how you describe it. Um, but I'm going to skip talking about those four periods of, of missions history and go straight to what we now call the three waves of modern missions and give you some numbers that might excite you. Sociologists estimate that there are approximately 16,700 people groups in the world. Um, how you define a people group is complicated. Um, I probably wouldn't even be able to do it justice, but let's trust the sociologist on that. But there's roughly 16,700 people groups in the world. In the year 1700, about 1,700 years after Christ's time, 
about a thousand of them had been reached with the gospel. Which means what? There's a lot of people groups still ready to be, that, that, that need to hear the gospel. Well, if you do your research and you look at like the Lausanne Covenant or you look at um, uh, the Joshua Project, as of the turn of the century, the 21st century, where we're living now, every last identifiable people group has been adopted by a mission agency and strategies are being or have been made to send missionaries to these places. To date, about 2,000 people groups have had virtually no exposure to Christianity. Now, there's two ways of looking at that number. One, you could say, well, it's unfortunate that 2,000 still have not heard about Christianity. But think about that for a second. 1,700 years after Jesus, 1,000 people groups had been reached with the gospel. And today, all but 2,000 of that 16,700 had been infiltrated with the gospel. What happened 300 years ago. And that's what I want to trace with you just briefly here. You could, just, you could, you could, you could separate this, these, this movement into three waves, how some missiologists will, just, will separate into three waves. The first wave would roughly be 1793 to 1865 and can best be characterized by the work of a man named William Carey as he, as he called out to go to unreached lands, unreached territories, William Carey caught a vision for our responsibility to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. As a result of his call, and if you ever read his, lit- his literature, incredible, brilliant stuff that he, that, he, um, that he developed, all with a sixth grade education, I might add. And he also translated the scriptures into like 38 different dialects of India with a sixth grade education, so don't tell me you can't do it. If God calls you to do it, you can do it. But multiple mission agencies were formed following in William Carey's example. Masses of people at that time were beginning to make intentional decisions for sacrifice. Missionaries knew they were probably going to their deaths at that time. One historian reports that families would pack their belongings in caskets. In fact, out of 35 missionaries who went to Ghana in the mid-19th century... Only two lived more than two years into their mission, which is pretty incredible. The sacrifices were made, but what's more incredible? They kept going. They kept going. It's amazing. In fact, James Calvert, he went to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands, and when the captain was, was taking him there of the ship, he would cry out to James Calvert and say, you will lose your life and the lives of those with... With you, if you go among such savages. Calvert turned back and looked at the captain of the ship and said, Sir, we died before we came here. This was the heartbeat and the mindset of the first wave of the, missions move, of, of the modern missions movement. The second wave of the mi- modern missions movement could be um, dated 1865 to roughly 19, the 1940s and could be characterized mostly by the work of Hudson Taylor. There's so many names that could be named, but I'm just picking highlights here. Hudson Taylor describes himself as having a bad day one Sunday. That's how he words it. He had a bad day in church one Sunday, and he wrote in his journal, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security. 
while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief. And I surrendered myself to God for this service. Hudson Taylor um, began to not just go to unreached lands, but to press deep inland. In fact, he started the, um, the first interdenominational missions agency, not based in his homeland like other agencies, but his was based right in the middle of his field. He started China Inland Missions, which was based in Singapore. Forty agencies were formed as a result of his challenge. What were some of the characteristics of the people during this wave? These were not spiritual giants, but merely people who were so captivated with the beauty of God and so broken by the lostness of the world that they simply could not help but say, here I am, send me. Hudson Taylor is quoted as saying, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. I love this quote, Gladys Allward. She says, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. I don't know who it was. It must have been a man, a well-educated man. I, I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Allward. And God said, well, she's willing. Are you willing? This is the second wave of the modern missions movement. The third wave of the modern missions movement can be dated roughly the 1930s. I know they overlap a little bit. Roughly the 1930s to, to present day. And it could be characterized a, a, a great deal by the work of a man named Cameron Townsend. And he moved not just pressing inland, but he actually started identifying specific cultures. And in particular, specific languages. He worked in Guatemala. He was pressing into the mountains. Tribal people in Guatemala were, were required to learn Spanish in order to be taught the gospel. During this time, Townsend was challenged by an Indian. If your God is so smart, why can't he speak our language? Well, this cut to the heart of Cameron Townsend, and he started Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL, Summer Institute of Linguistics. And he began translating and putting together teams to translate the scriptures into many, many languages. Today, Wycliffe is the largest, not the largest mission agency in the world, but the largest non-denominational mission agency in the world. A Scottish missionary and linguist Arabic scholar, Ian Keith Valconer is quoted as saying, While vast continents are shrouded in darkness, the burden of proof lies upon you to show that the circumstances in which God has placed you were meant by God to keep you out of the foreign mission field. To believe that this was the single calling of all believers, directly or indirectly, to make sure that the gospel finished its work of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. Are we in a fourth wave of modern missions? I, I don't know. In 2010, IMB, that's the Southern Baptist Mission Agency, which is the largest mission agency in the world, began restructuring how they approached a shrinking world where geopolitical borders no longer define a people group. This mentality is showing up in many agencies today, including Wycliffe. So you could make a case for there being a fourth wave of modern missions. But what I really want to excite you with is, are you hearing some of these numbers? You know, 1,700 years and 1,000 
people groups are reached. And in the last 300 years, all but 2,000 are reached. So I want to close before we move to communion with a prediction with two numbers and a goal. The prediction in Matthew 24, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you want to see Jesus return? Well, then what do we need to be about? We need to be about this testimony going out to all nations. And then the end will come. And what does that take? Well, there's two numbers, and you've probably heard me say this before. I only have one message. I just say it in different ways. But The first number can be found in Romans 11.25, and Paul writes, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So, we want to see that goal reached. There's some Gentiles out there that aren't filling up that number yet. Go find them. Go save them. The second number can be found in Revelation 6.11. When the martyrs who are standing at the throne, those who had been uh, uh, killed or beheaded, and they're asking Jesus, How long? How long until our, our blood is avenged? How long until you speak up for what we suffered for the gospel? And they're comforted with white robes. And they're told, until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. That's a sobering number, isn't it? But what are we waiting for? We're waiting for more Gentiles to be saved, and we're waiting for more believers to so be sold out on this vision as to give their lives to see it happen. And what is the goal? Revelation 5.9, in my opinion. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, which we're about to remember here, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why are we not just taken up to heaven? Because God wants us to be about that purpose. And I praise God for those who have taken up that call. We are so close. The peoples have been identified. Let us not run the race and be so enamored by the finish line that we stop and gaze and gawk at it. Instead, let us gather up our second win and burst through the finish line into the kingdom of God. Amen. I want to close with just reading a a passage from Colossians 1. And I want you to hear, because I think this passage ties together a lot of what we talked about today communion and the sacrifice that jesus did for us his blood his um his love his example his atonement but paul takes it a little bit further and he gives us a response to that how should we respond so in colossians 1 verse 19 he writes for in him talking about jesus all the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That was the agent of peace. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled, in his body of flesh, by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. To his saints, moving on to verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's stand together. And FBC, as we go, let us struggle with the energy of Christ to make his glorious riches known until the job is done. Amen? Have a good day.